Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just What we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. This is the California Report. Good morning. I'm Saul Gonzalez in Los Angeles. The California Department of Public Health is issuing new home isolation guidance for people with confirmed or suspected cases of monkeypox. The guidelines include information on when a person should remain at home, resume outdoor activities, and return to work. State Public Health Director Dr. Thomas Aragon says the state's guidelines are more detailed than the CDC's national recommendations. The general CDC guidelines basically says to stay home until your lesions have completely healed over with uh, new skin. And part of the problem is, is that some people have lesions that are very limited on their body. Aragon says as long as the lesions are covered up and there's no risk to others, people can resume normal activities, though there are separate recommendations for those who work in higher-risk settings. As of late last week, the state has reported more than 2,600 probable and confirmed cases of monkeypox. More than 600 are in San Francisco. L.A. County has confirmed over 1,000 cumulative cases. State health officials also say moving forward, they'll avoid using the term monkeypox when describing describing the transmissible virus and instead use the term mpox. A reason for the change hasn't been given by the state, but the World Health Organization has called for a new term for the virus to make it less stigmatizing and discriminatory. California is adding Georgia to its already lengthy list of states where publicly funded travel is banned because of anti-LGBTQ legislation. KQED's Holly J. McDeed reports. The travel restrictions come in response to a bill passed by Georgia lawmakers earlier this year that allows the state's athletic association to ban transgender girls from competing in girls' sports. State Attorney General Rob Bonta says blocking transgender youth from playing sports is both discriminatory and government overreach. California lawmakers passed a law in 2016 that restricts travel to states that adopt laws or repeal protections for LGBTQ plus people. Since then, California has banned state-funded travel in nearly half of all states in the country. For the California Report, I'm Holly J. McDeed. A Bay Area man involved with a violent anti-government militia is set to be sentenced today for exchanging sexual photos with a minor and destroying records in a federal investigation. KQED's Alex Hall has more. 
Robert Jesus Blancas was arrested in December of 2020 after a fellow militia member, Stephen Carrillo, murdered two law enforcement officers. Upon learning of the murders, Blancas erased the group's WhatsApp messages and Dropbox files. He and three other men were convicted of conspiracy to destroy records and official proceedings, among other charges. While investigating his role in the group, federal agents say they found evidence Blancas exchanged sexually explicit messages, photos, and videos with underage girls online. Blancas pleaded guilty to the conspiracy and child pornography charges last year. Prosecutors are seeking a 15-year prison sentence. For The California Report, I'm Alex Hall. More than $300 million in federal grants will be distributed to communities in California that are still trying to rebuild from devastating wildfires in 2018. Now, the majority of that money, $200 million, is earmarked for the town of Paradise in Butte County, site of California's deadliest wildfire. According to Governor Newsom's office, the funding will be used for projects to help rebuild higher density and more affordable housing, rebuild business districts, and prepare better evacuation routes in case of any future disasters. Butte and Los Angeles counties and the cities of Chico, Malibu, Redding, and Shasta Lake also received millions in funding. Hi, I'm Sasha Coca, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse Golden State. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as like the place to be California. The land of milk and honey, that's where you go to Sunshine State, but we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member. Get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. Let's turn to transportation. Both the Biden administration and California have big goals when it comes to getting more people to drive electric vehicles as a way to fight climate change. And you've likely heard about some of the obstacles in the way of those goals, like the cost and availability of EVs. But there's another challenge to wide EV adoption that doesn't get nearly as much attention. It's the kind of housing millions of people live in and whether they can find or install electric vehicle charging stations there. I heard a lot about that at a recent electric vehicle expo in Long Beach. And here's where you can feel the instant torque if you want to go ahead and give it a little power on the accelerator pedal. It's got a zero to 60 in about 4.6 seconds. I was sitting in the back seat as prospective EV buyer Mike Maynard test drove an all-electric Kia with a sales rep from the company. How's it feel? It's nice. It's very smooth. No engine noise compared to a standard traditional engine, but it's very smooth. But when we finished the test drive, Mike, who's a renter, said he probably couldn't buy an EV until he moved. You know, I live in a multifamily apartment complex. Being able to charge at home overnight may not be as easy as someone who has a single family home and a a garage that they can go home to. That is a real world thing that you would have to deal with. Absolutely, it is the number one barrier 
at this point to buying an EV. Electric vehicle industry analyst Lauren McDonald says Mike's problem of not having chargers in his apartment building could affect lots of other California renters. There are people who'd like to buy an EV, but don't have a place to plug in and charge when they come home. Really about half of the people in the state live in apartments, condos, or homes where they don't have access to conveniently charge just plugging in at home every night and waking up in the morning with a full full battery. And I think that limits like the growth of the market. Unlike people who own their own homes, renters have to negotiate with apartment building owners about installing EV chargers. Chargers that could cost upwards of $3,000 each and might require pricey electrical upgrades in older buildings. John Schott with charging station company ChargePoint says that makes a lot of apartment owners hesitant to install chargers. So typically there's some, you know, maybe concern or or hesitancy to do that until um, they see demand for charging stations at their properties. So they have, you know, tenants or prospective tenants who have electric vehicles and want to charge their vehicles. There might be nobody currently who has an EV, or there could just be a single person. So, uh, you know, I think it's, it's kind of a chicken and egg thing. But there are apartment buildings whose owners have made the leap and installed EV chargers. Some because of rebate programs offered by utility companies like Southern California Edison. Others because they see chargers as an amenity more tenants will demand in the future. How important was having a charger here in your decision to buy an electric vehicle? Very important. That's renter Christian Viaseca. He and his partner Nurhan Babazadeh purchased an EV last year, but only after they found an apartment building that already had chargers installed. It's very convenient to charge the car at home. Like at night, you charge the car, you have it ready for the next day. So. Would you have an EV? Uh, would that have been more of a decision if you didn't have the charger where you live? I think I could yeah. think about it twice. Yeah, absolutely. And it's crazy because two years ago, I would have never thought that that would be such a big deciding factor for us. But now it's definitely, yeah, it's like having a laundry machine at home. Looking ahead, the state of California has partnered with ChargePoint to install EV chargers in multifamily home dwellings, with 75% of the units reserved for buildings in low-income communities. But if millions of more California motorists who also rent are going to be encouraged to drive EVs, much more will need to be done to install chargers in apartment buildings across the state. Let's turn to education. Estimates say as many as one out of every five students have dyslexia, the learning disorder that affects reading and writing. But if diagnosed, does your child's school know what to do about it? In California, answers to that question are all over the map. And advocates say that's because Sacramento has failed to hand down clear requirements to schools. Partner station KPCC in Pasadena has been looking into this issue for months. Here's reporter Kyle Stokes, who looks back at the last time California tried to tackle the dyslexia issue statewide. In 2015, the advocacy network Decoding Dyslexia California pushed state lawmakers to pass dyslexia legislation. And they did. But co-founder Lori DePole's dreams for mandatory dyslexia screenings and statewide teacher trainings did not make it into the final law. So while it was a win, it wasn't as comprehensive as the original bill uh, intended. Instead, the law ordered state officials to write a new set of dyslexia guidelines, guidelines that schools could in theory just ignore. 
But back then, administrators who ran special education programs thought even the watered-down legislation went too far. They worried that the forthcoming guidelines would push more dyslexic students into their programs for students with disabilities. Special ed isn't only more expensive. Experts say it's unnecessary for many students with dyslexia. But fast forward two years. Once the guidelines came out, we were ecstatic. Veronica Coates oversees special education services in Tehama County. And far from pushing more students into their programs, the new guidelines affirmed what experts say. General education teachers can be equipped to help students with dyslexia. And Coates says having an official state document helped make that clear. I think it was demystifying their belief that dyslexia was this thing out here that they didn't have the skills to teach to, whereas that now those guidelines put out by the field, um, as they're reading those guidelines, they're like, oh, we do this all the time. You know, this is the this is the curriculum I use. I use that intervention. Many schools do use a model that the state's dyslexia guidelines endorses. It's called multi-tiered systems of support. And it basically means that when a student is struggling in class, schools try a series of gradually escalating responses. To understand how it works, talk to Lale de Aslan. Her daughter Maya was struggling with reading at the end of kindergarten, even with basic words. Sight words, as, is, it. She's good at sounding it out, but then doesn't seem to identify it with a word that she knows. So in first grade, De Aslan School, a public charter on L.A.'s west side, started escalating. Basically, I was having conversations with the teacher throughout the year, and they were like, okay, let's try this, let's try this. First, the school sent Maya home with flashcards and later pulled her in for extra help after school. Maya didn't improve after either of these steps, so the school evaluated her for special education services. The school concluded De Aslan's daughter likely has dyslexia. And I do see progress. Um, we have seen progress. This sort of progression is what California's guidelines would recommend, funneling dyslexic students into special education only after earlier interventions have failed. But again, schools are under no obligation to follow these guidelines. Veronica Coates says some schools are struggling to embrace them, but others aren't. So what's next is kind of an exciting thing, but also our state is so vast. There are vastly different um Implementation stages. Implementation is not a simple task. Experts say many teachers have strong opinions about how to teach reading, opinions that don't always line up with the latest evidence. As we'll cover later in our series, many of those opinions are also formed in their teacher prep programs. And as we covered last week, California is one of only 10 states in the U.S. that does not require schools to screen all students for dyslexia. Here's Lori DePole from Decoding Dyslexia California. Approaching this issue of poor reading outcomes, it's really done with a comprehensive approach. And I feel like California isn't there yet. And without firm directives on how to handle dyslexia, DePole says those guidelines will remain just that, guidelines. For The California Report, I'm Kyle Stokes. And that is the California Report for Monday, August 22nd. We are a production of KQED Public Radio. Remember, we have a daily podcast. You can find it wherever you get your podcasts. I'm your host, Saul Gonzalez. Thanks so much for listening, and have a great day. Support for the California Report comes from the California Healthcare Foundation. 
working to build a more effective, compassionate, and just healthcare system on the web at chcf.org slash health-equity. Hint, fruit-infused water in over 25 flavors like watermelon, pineapple, and blackberry. No sweeteners, no calories. In stores or delivered from drinkhint.com. And Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose philanthropy includes Schmidt Ocean Institute. Coming this fall, the launch of research vessel FALCOR-2, advancing the frontiers of ocean science and exploration on the web at schmidtocean.org. Do you love learning about the San Francisco Bay Area? Its history, its people, its unique blend of cultures? Then you should check out the Bay Curious book. I'm Katrina Schwartz, editor and producer on the Bay Curious podcast, and I'm here to let you know that for the month of May, we've worked out a sweet deal for KQED podcast listeners. Right now, you can get the Bay Curious ebook for $1.99. That's right, $1.99. Just search for Bay Curious wherever you get your ebooks or find a link in our show notes. This offer does expire at the end of the month, though, so you'll want to act on it fast. Happy reading! Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. 